I think if I learned a lesson, I probably learned one lesson too well, which was to be more skittish around the press. So even when I was UN ambassador, I wasn't nearly as accessible as I might have been. And I think in retrospect, if you look at one of the issues in our current politics, like I don't think we sold American foreign policy and how it mattered for the American people as well as we might have. But the bigger lesson was more personal, which was, man, like life, <laughs> shit happens and, <laughs> and you need people. And to be vulnerable and to be taken care of, open yourself up because you never know what's going to hit you. Samantha Power was born in Ireland and emigrated to the United States as a child. She started her professional life as a journalist, reporting from the Bosnian Civil War of the mid-1990s. Her reflections on what she perceived as a breakdown of Western policy in the face of genocide informed her first book, A Problem from Hell. It won her a Pulitzer Prize and attracted the attention of many American politicians, among them Illinois Senator Barack Obama, who hired her as a foreign policy advisor and later, as president, appointed her the United States ambassador to the United Nations. The story told in Samantha Power's terrific new memoir, The Education of an Idealist, is of a journey from arguing that something must be done to trying to actually do it. I'm Andrew Muller. Samantha Power joined me at Midori House here in London for The Big Interview. Samantha Power, welcome to The Big Interview. Great to be here. I want to start at the start, as indeed your book does, with your upbringing in Ireland and your move at the age of nine to the United States, and ask whether you reflected on whether diplomats are born or made, because the the two things that struck me from that early period, there's the attempts to intercede with your parents, who were not getting on brilliantly for a number of reasons, and then once having moved to America, we find you negotiating with God on behalf of the Pittsburgh Pirates, successfully, I might add, in the 1979 World Series. Did you start thinking that where you ended up was kind of where you were always destined to go? No, not in (laughs) one million years. I hadn't thought of my, you know, kneeling down to pray for the Pittsburgh Pirates as my first summit with uh, and one with God. I, I wasn't entirely sure he was listening. But I think coming from elsewhere at whatever age and having family and close family ties somewhere else in some other part of the world certainly makes you more outward oriented than you would otherwise be. So I, I probably was had an eye on what was happening around the world more than I would have if I'd grown up in a more sort of traditional American household. But later, when I moved away from wanting just to be a sports journalist and broadcaster, which was really all I wanted, you know, until my early 20s. But once I made the shift, you know, then I look back and I see all of these precursors and less about negotiating because I didn't succeed in saving my parents' marriage but more putting yourself in the shoes of others, which I think is a key ingredient to being an effective diplomat, is to be able to not simply judge the positions of someone on the other side of the table, even if it's the Russian ambassador and you want to strangle him at some times, but but in fact say, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to be getting instructions from Putin. I wonder what it would be like you know, to have this nationalist sort of surge in my country and then be confronted with this American who's on a public stage denouncing you and what your country is doing, but then you being the Russian ambassador wanting to find a source of cooperation with her. Like, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. I think 
to be able to bridge those distances. I don't know, maybe being an insider, outsider, outsider, insider left me with that, which I think did help for diplomacy. On the coming from elsewhere thing, though, I want to ask specifically about the elsewhere you came from, which was the Republic of Ireland, and whether you think that ended up being an advantage, first, as you you seek to make your way as a foreign correspondent in Bosnia in the mid-90s, as many journalists of that generation did, but later then working as a diplomat on behalf of the United States, whether you thought it was an advantage or a disadvantage or indeed any kind of thing at all to think that maybe I'm approaching these things like an Irish person, not necessarily like an American. It's just, it's a thing I wonder about because having reported from a few places in the Balkans and the Middle East where you keep running up against the sort of inbaked ancient hatreds or even indeed in Northern Ireland, I've often wondered whether being an Australian as I am is some kind of disadvantage because I don't really have a frame of reference for a lot of the things these people are talking about. And um, American journalists I know have have sometimes said the same thing. Well, I think that conflict, even though it never affected me or my closest loved ones, but was never something that I thought of as necessarily, quote, over there. So just because the troubles were so nearby, I mean, I write in the book about how 1974, the year of my brother's birth, there was a big explosion and terrorist attack in downtown Dublin, very near to where we lived. So that sense of vulnerability, the sense that even perfectly reasonable, civilized people can spiral into violent periods, you know, I probably carried that with me somewhere, such that then when I went to Bosnia, you know, and then I had both my Irish passport and my American passport, people would say, well, you're Irish, you understand, you know, there was the great saying in the Balkans that I've also heard applied to Ireland, which is nothing learned, nothing forgotten. (laughs) Um, You know, the role of history in the present. But when I got to the UN, I think whether it was specific to Ireland or just that I was an immigrant, was definitely a source of strength. Not so much for me, maybe it was for me at the margins, but the idea that America is a country that has immigrants at its Mm. core, you know, such that not just me, but Madeleine Albright, a Czech refugee, Zalmay Khalilzad, who'd come to the United States from Afghanistan, who was George W. Bush's UN ambassador. I mean, the number of people who commented on just like what a symbol it is of what has been until quite recently of a a proud American strength, which is this pluralism and e pluribus unum, and we all come together. And then not only do we come together, but it's our immigrants who are the face of our country at the UN. I mean, you can't measure soft power and where it comes from and, you know, what portion is rap and what portion is the NBA and what portion is having immigrant UN ambassadors. But certainly that is something that makes America an attractive place for all of our other foibles. It's the personification, I guess, of an idea expressed in a speech by Ronald Reagan, what now seems a million years ago. I think it was his valedictory speech, if memory serves, where he talked about that the peculiar genius of the United States being that anybody anywhere in the world could dream of one day being an American in the same way that you can't really feel like that about many other nationalities. Yeah, I mean, I had this experience, again, which I write about because it still strikes me so much as as ambassador, as a cabinet official, I had this beautiful privilege of being able to quasi-preside over naturalization ceremonies where 
back in 1993, I went back to the Brooklyn courthouse where I'd been sworn in as an American. Now I find myself up at the top of the room in this wood-paneled courtroom with a judge watching dozens of new Americans, some in tears, all in their Sunday best, taking the oath. And what was, struck me at the moment was in this first moment was just, wow, like I look at this list of names and I can't pronounce half of them. And yet now from this moment, they're all American names. These are now American names. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. Then I go back to the U.S. mission to the U.N. and I walk in and I see the longest serving administrative assistant secretary at the U.S. mission to the U.N. And her dad had immigrated from China, come by himself with one pair of pants and worked, I think, at a laundromat in Iowa before he was able to bring his daughter, one of our secretaries, to this country. My human rights advisor was a daughter of Lebanese immigrants who had fled the Civil War. My special assistant was the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. My deputy was a Palestinian-American. My Syria advisor was the son of a former Syrian Air Force officer who came to the United States and actually drove ice cream trucks. You know, what struck me was not that the U.S. mission to the U.N. was exceptional. Pretty much any office building, at least in New York, but in much of America, you're going to find that kind of lineage where everybody's either an immigrant or a descendant of an immigrant or just a couple generations removed, and including, of course, at the White House with the spouse of the the current president, (laughs) right, is not only an immigrant herself, but brought her family through this so-called chain migration to America. So it just is kind of crazy now that this has become something that some Americans, including our president, want to walk away from and somehow see as a trend to be bucked when it's too late for that. I'm afraid, like, we're in, you know, the country as a nation of immigrants is not going to change. I'll come back to the UN. I wanted to go back, first of all, to Bosnia, where you were working quite successfully as a a freelance journalist during the war. Was there a particular point you can recall at which you decided that being a journalist was never going to be quite enough? Because it always strikes me that there's an interesting transition, which some people make and some don't. There's a big undertow of a lot of journalism, and there certainly was about a lot of the reporting from Bosnia that something should be done. Was there a moment at which you can remember thinking, maybe one day I I should be one of the people who does it? Yes. I I mean, I think there was no grandiosity in the moment. There was no, and thus, I will one day. You know, I didn't have any sense that this could happen exactly. But I initially, when I got to the former Yugoslavia, I and my colleagues not only had the sense, as you rightly say, that, quote, something should be done, even if we were ill-informed on precisely what that something should be. But we had that sense. But we also, the the locals whom we were interviewing about horrible events were incredibly generous with us and patient with us, even having suffered unspeakable tragedy themselves, even in the immediate wake of the loss of a loved one, bringing us in, telling their story in the hopes that the do-something brigade or the laptop generals, you know, that we had all these nicknames, but that our stories would move policymakers And I think in the second half of my time there, toward really the tail end of my time there, they gave up. They gave up on our governments and thus kind of gave up on us as messengers. And so I did have this experience once, and I even, you know, it's painful to go back to your journals at any point in your life. It's especially painful to go back to journals in your early 20s. But where I'm watching Warren Christopher and the Russian foreign minister and other ministers come for one of these interminable junkets that aren't really helping anybody but, you know, end up being a photo op for war criminals. And I I actually write in my journal, I feel the impotence 
of my words, nothing we say matters. Maybe one day I need to be on that side of the microphone because I was in the scrum around it with my tape recorder out listening to these guys. And again, it would have seemed as likely as me playing center field for the Pittsburgh Pirates. You know, it would not have seemed that the trajectory was obvious, but it was an impulse to do more than just report. And a few years later, I would have, it would have crystallized even more. And it was what I realized was no matter how powerful what I wrote was, I was so dependent on the middleman. I needed someone to read if it even was as powerful as I thought. Like, But if I thought I'd written something where I'd really managed to bridge a distance between my readers and, for example, a mass grave in Darfur, I was so dependent on someone finding the article, reading the article, turning the article into something actionable, winning an internal debate, ensuring that they then knew how to work the bureaucracy in order to, let's say, get sanctions imposed against some warlord. And it just seemed like there were too many steps in between. So even still at that point, I wouldn't have known how to go from being a journalist and an activist to an insider. And so I still, against that backdrop, needed a lucky break. And of course, the lucky break was that Barack Obama reached out to me. And I suddenly found myself in a position where having dinner with him, I could either take the plunge and say, hey, how'd you like to have a scholar of mass atrocities and genocide working on your Senate staff? Or I could hang back and wonder forevermore whether my articles were going to reach someone like him. You become or you gain that reputation as a scholar of genocide through your book, A Problem from Hell, which won a Pulitzer Prize. And I guess you could say that phrase, something should be done, is a very crass, reductive subtext of what the book was actually about. Did not your later life in actually making policy, but researching the book, talking to people who'd been in those rooms where they have to make that decision, did that modify your view? views on the practicalities of intervention? Definitely from when I had been a journalist in Bosnia, right? When I was just a kind of bystander or witness to what came out of the black box of decision-making. So I was seeing NATO planes flying overhead, monitoring what was going on, not taking action. I was seeing these diplomats traipsing through, not seeming to have much leverage in their diplomacy. And so at that point, I would have just been like, what is going on? You know, why can't somebody There's always uh, an assumption, isn't there, that someone can just pick up a phone and fix something? Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I would have had that. And so by contrast, and your question is excellent, when I start then talking to hundreds of U.S. officials who'd been involved in the internal debates, I guess the most striking dimension of that was how contested policy was, in fact. So at a time where it looks like, again, the black box that is the United States policymaking apparatus is producing something that to me seems kind of feckless, inside it's as live and contingent and who's up and who's down really matters and whether somebody is seen as a favorite of this senior official or, I mean, one of the most terrible examples of this was in Rwanda in the case of reporting on the U.S. response to the Rwandan genocide, the killing of 800,000 people. The lower level officials, having seen what had just happened in Burundi, where far fewer people were killed, but tens of thousands of people had been killed in genocidal killing, and there had never been even any after action, any press coverage really about any, quote, failure or any questions raised about about whether more should have been done. And so when Rwanda started talking to these officials and just hearing that they just assumed 
that nobody at the White House would be terribly interested in what was happening in neighboring Rwanda, and especially because it was also Hutu Tutsi killing, you know, again, different dynamics in many ways. But but they just thought people didn't care about Hutu and Tutsi in, in Burundi. Why would they care about killings in Rwanda? And so that kind of self-censorship, it was the humanity of each of the agents and actors behind the curtain that really struck me. I mean, there were just people with foibles and vulnerabilities and insecurities and people who were reading signals that the signal sender didn't even necessarily think that they were, you know, weren't self-conscious about sending. And so that made it feel more contested and oddly more hopeful. You know, even in writing the book, I thought I was writing a book about bystanding, but I ended up, you know, honing in on this idea of the upstander of like these individuals who are very moved, who went into public service to be in a position to respond to crises just like the ones that they were encountering, and yet who were blocked in all of these ways, and who and who often, in some cases, were willing to resign over what they perceived as America's failure to do what it should. But more often than not, they would stay and just kind of marginalize themselves by being seen as too emotional or too attached to the people in a particular country. And so seeing the humanity of policymaking, I think, is something that also helps then situate your advocacy on the outside, because then you know kind of what people are, what are the walls they're bumping up against? I mean, they're not looking away because they sort of woke up in the morning and said, oh, let's allow the Rwandan genocide today, right? Everyone has other aspirations, and they're incommensurate values and interests that are competing in this kind of internal scrum. Part of that transition that you made from one side of the microphone to the other, as you put it, did involve becoming a public figure and quite a well-known public figure. And there's a section in the book which I wouldn't normally mention because I'm not a big fan of the gotcha gaffe as a tool of journalism. People, I. It'll shock, it'll shock you to hear. <laughs> but you know, people, people say stuff and it's not always what they necessarily meant to say and quite a lot of the time it doesn't really mean anything. But during Barack Obama's campaign for the Democratic nomination which he eventually secured, you made that offhand remark to a Scottish journalist referring to Hillary Clinton as a monster, which did instantly make you the catch of the day. I don't know, was it ever a gate? Was it Monster Gate? Did it deserve the gate? It certainly was in my own mind <laughs> and in my family's mind. But, yes. but Monster Gate, you do write about in the book at some length and quite nakedly about what an extraordinary ordeal that was to turn on the news and see all of a sudden, I'm the story. In retrospect, though, do you regard that as kind of inoculating? You got through that and survived, therefore, whatever. It probably should have been, and I I don't know exactly why I remain, (laughs) you know, kind of uh, on the verge of believing or expecting that that something terrible is going to happen when you least expect it. I mean, what was interesting about that moment was that my life had changed so much in a short period of time by virtue of meeting Barack Obama. I mean, I went from being a critic of American foreign policy, working alone as I had as a journalist and as a professor and as an activist, to suddenly being part of a team. You know, it was a beautiful, there was like a, a great solidarity in that team in particular because it was such an insurgency. Nobody really expected Obama running for the first time as a first-term senator to give Hillary Clinton a real run for her money. And we were behind 30 percentage points at different times in the race. And suddenly, at the time that that happened, we were the front runner. I'd had a book that had just come out that had done well. I had just met 
somebody on the Obama campaign, Cass Sunstein, and we just started dating, and I had had a largely dysfunctional romantic life before then. So I was Icarus, man. I mean, I was like <laughs> flying so close to the sun. I arrive in Dublin having had what I thought was a glowingly successful book tour stop in London. Bono texts me, wants to meet for a drink. You know, I'm not exactly hanging out with Bono very often. And I'm just like, wow, like everything is going well. And then... Nothing can possibly go wrong. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I probably would never... Because my... I actually always had that sense of that something could go wrong of some kind because my dad had died very suddenly when I was young, as I write about in the book. But um, so I never would think nothing can go wrong. But I was just... I was just on the top of my game, I felt. And then suddenly an interview that I had given in London too. The Scotsman were in saying what I thought was off the record, but was incredibly stupid and ill-considered to say in front of a reporter as I vented about some negative ads that Hillary had taken out on a friend of mine. You know, suddenly it all came crashing down. And Obama was amazing through this. I mean, emailing, calling, checking in, even as his campaign was going through a very rough patch. It was the first time that I had ever, when the going got tough, and it was very tough to be a global scandal. It it seems kind of quaint now compared to the kind of scandals that exist seem a lot more severe today than this, what in retrospect seems so small. But even if Again, a terrible mistake on my part, but I never, in encountering any turbulence, had opened myself up to rely on anybody else. And so here was my first time going through something of that magnitude, but also my first time relying on someone, in this case, Cass, who I had just started dating. And I was so demoralized and despondent and and, and just the thought that I could either that Hillary could think that I could think that about her or that I could hurt Barack Obama's campaign. And and I was, you become so narcissistic also Mm. when something like this happens. I mean, I was absolutely convinced I was going to cost him the nomination. It's that thing where it's in the headlines, therefore it must be important. Indeed. And, and, you know, Cass is a constitutional law scholar, but also a behavioral scientist. And so he's giving me all this alleged consolation about, you know, no, this is just the spotlight effect. Uh, you know, uh, this is when, when you are in the news, you think that everybody else is thinking about you. And I'm like, Cass, they are thinking about me. Look at the headlines in Pakistan, like for crying out loud. And so, you know, in the end, I think if I learned a lesson, I probably learned one lesson too well, which was to be more skittish around the press. So even when I was UN ambassador, I wasn't nearly as accessible as I might have been. And I think in retrospect, if you look at one of the issues in our current politics, like I don't think we sold American foreign policy and how it mattered for the American people as well as we might have. We sold American foreign policy, but not rooting it in the welfare of Americans. I'm not saying again that had I talked to the press more that Donald Trump would not be president by any means. But but I do think there's a case for more grounding of what we're doing, again, in local American circumstances. And I I could stand to have been more of a part of that, I think, in retrospect. But the bigger lesson was more personal, which was 
man, like life, <laughs> shit happens, and <laughs> and you need people, and to be vulnerable and to be taken care of as I was by this guy Cass. So I ended up marrying him, you know, in this interregnum between when I had to resign the campaign and then when he got the nomination, Obama got the nomination, I was able to go back. So that's sort of the best lesson of all is the, the lesson that I describe multiple times in the book of lean on, you know, not just lean in, but lean on other people and open yourself up because you never know what's going to hit you. This is, I think, kind of a lesson you apply to your role as, as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. You, you do make a point, which does seem to come to us as quite a shock to quite a lot of the other ambassadors, of trying to go and meet all of them. I think it's only the North Koreans who refuse to accept your invitation. I'm always interested in this, the degree to which great decisions involving nations and continents and alliances get made on the basis of whether two or three people happen to get on personally well or not. Have you found, especially at the UN, that that was the case? It's a There's a particularly interesting sequence in your book, actually a recurring theme of your relationship with Russia's ambassador, the late Vitaly Cherkin, with whom you obviously had many disagreements agreements on the floor of the General Assembly and the Security Council, but with whom in person you got on very well? I mean, you asked such a great question, and it's very hard to measure what building those relationships buys you transactionally, you know, for your agenda. But I did invest in going to meet with the ambassadors. I mean, on one level, it wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't like I was going to their countries, right? I was going to their missions. I didn't have to leave Manhattan. But it was 191 meetings over the course of my time. More than 50 of the ambassadors' missions that I visited, none of their predecessors or them had ever been visited by an American permanent representative before. And so it definitely got their attention, you know, that this was a way of showing respect and valuing their individual dignity and and that they mattered even if they were from a poor country or a small country or an island country, that, that you go to them and you listen to them and you take them seriously. So on one level, they're still individuals within their systems, and it's not like I'm meeting with their heads of state. But on another level, I do think building those relationships, showing respect, means that they hear your message, I think, by and large, in a more sympathetic way, that they hear the authenticity also of your commitment to the issues you care about, because you're talking about what matters to you in those, again, non-transactional settings. I played soccer with the Latin American ambassadors. I definitely tried to draw on those relationships when it came time to tough votes. So what I'd say is on issues where a country's position was fixed, which was a lot of issues, relationships just aren't going to be that big of a deal. On the question of, for example, LGBT rights, which is a very, very difficult issue for a lot of countries within the UN because 70 plus countries criminalize being LGBT. But those ambassadors may become not necessarily advocates for LGBT rights, but they may become people who happen to have a dentist appointment during the vote. Or they may become people who are capable of taking an option that I give them for how they make the argument to their head of state, namely a procedural argument. Well, why would you take away benefits for same-sex couples that the Ban Ki-moon, the secretary general, has granted? That would be a procedural infringement on Ban Ki-moon's authority as secretary general. So in other words, 
it's my job to give them an argument that they can use with a leader or in a government that may be homophobic intrinsically, but give them a, a procedural place to go. And they may then take that and run with that because they sense that this really is about dignity and equality and they are willing to hear me out that there's a way to get there that doesn't touch on the most sensitive issues in their country. Same on standing up to Russian aggression in Ukraine. You would have thought that that for any country within the UN would be a no-brainer just to vote in the General Assembly to preserve Crimea as part of Ukraine on the maps and not to recognize Russia's illegal attempted annexation. But a lot of countries just want to duck. You know, they don't want to, even if they are the ones, small countries especially, have the most to gain by having the international rules of the road respected, they just don't want to confront a big power like Russia and don't like the thought of being on Putin's bad side. Who would? And yet I felt like I got the most sympathetic hearing I could and managed to mobilize, I think, through these relationships, largely more than 100 votes, which ensures that the maps, no matter what Putin does on the ground, will not change, which, again, is mainly symbolic on one level. But it means that Ukraine will retain this historical claim for a time where maybe someone like Putin isn't governing Russia. And so that's on those kinds of issues where they have discretion to make the case, they have discretion to show up or not show up. But on issues that cut to the core, national interests are national interests as they understand them. So I don't want to exaggerate also. You can't transform the world (laughs) because you play soccer with the Latin American ambassadors. Thanks to Samantha Power for joining us on The Big Interview. Samantha's terrific memoir, The Education of an Idealist, is published by William Collins and out now. For more from Samantha Power, including a longer discussion on US foreign policy and more, stay tuned for a special upcoming episode of The Foreign Desk. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Yolin Goffan. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.